0: Greetings and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm your host, Monica Black. As you know, we pick exciting new books that the world needs to know about and we interview their authors. And today we are talking to Sean Forner, Associate Professor of History at Michigan State University. Uh, Sean has just published a very exciting new book called German Intellectuals and the Challenge of Democratic Renewal, Culture and Politics After 1945. The book was just published at the very tail end of last year. Uh, by Cambridge University Press. So, without further ado, Sean, how are you? How's the weather in East Lansing?
1: Hi, Monica. I'm doing well. Um, thanks very much for asking. And uh, I, well, I'm inside, so I'm not subject <laughs> to the. Uh, um, you know, it's it's cold here. It's cold, but it's super bright, which is one of the nice things that can happen in uh, an upper Midwest winter. Got yeah, a lot absolutely. of sun today. That's right. You get those brilliant blue skies. Well, on, on rare occasion in, in Michigan, rarer than uh, Minnesota where I'm from, but, but it's nice today.
0: Right. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. It's not very nice where I am, but.
1: I was just going to ask. <laughs> huh? uh,
0: I wonder if you want to get us started by telling us something about yourself and sort of introducing yourself to, uh, to our listeners.
1: Um, well, I'm a, I, I'm a professor, a recently associate professor, I guess I should say, at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, I'm a historian of 20th century Europe and of Germany, and I'm especially curious in my research about um, intersections of intellectual history and political culture, about how uh, imaginations about politics and society are shaped in time and in place. Uh, I teach a wide range of courses, undergraduate and graduate, um, chiefly on modern European history here at MSU. So uh, from lower level surveys on uh, things like the European Union to a graduate seminar on historiography and social theory. Um, I did my Ph.D. at the University of Chicago. Uh Actually, I've spent much of my life in the Midwest, uh, as I've already hinted at. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did grow up in Minnesota, um, with a uh, where the skies are much, much um, brighter and blue in the uh, in the winter than they uh, too often are here in Mid Michigan. Um, I grew up in a family, a German American family, with a German mother and an American father. Uh, it's not actually something that I identified with strongly as a child, but um, I'm sure it's not irrelevant to direction that my later interests have taken
0: yeah it's always interesting how things that didn't strike you particularly when you were young about your biography later seem to gain meanings that they didn't have you know depending on sort of how the course of your life uh, tends to go Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about German intellectuals and the challenge of democratic renewal because of course there was certainly a challenge uh, to the notion of democratic renewal in 1945 um, in 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 defeated Germany. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to the project and what your sort of initial interest was in the figures, uh, these very interesting figures whom, whose sort of careers you develop in the post-war period uh, over the course of your book.
1: Um, well, my initial interest, uh, I mean um, – developed over the course of my studies of uh, course in, in in history and in philosophy and literature uh and on the historical side i guess uh you know that um fascination that brings many of us to german history with uh upheavals that germany both experienced and and caused uh in the world um uh you know of course my interest in german contributions to to europe's philosophical and literary traditions uh, you know um, uh, informed, then, this um, curiosity about how these matters converged after 1945, and in, in just the sort of respects that you're um, that you're gesturing at. I mean, there was a, a challenge with democratic renewal in this moment. Um, so, uh, you know, in many ways, my um, what I was curious about was was first to, to think about how um, the various challenges. Um, you know, my actors talk and think a lot about democracy, but of course, uh, you know, the question of of uh, the question of culture, the question, question of guilt, the question of responsibility, um, the question of of traditions and their fates um, loomed so large uh, for um, for intellectuals and for other folks in this moment. Uh, I think a lot of the attention, you know, like like many people in the field, uh, I, I cut my teeth on sort of the great thinkers of the emigration In this respect, um, you know, mainly exiled um, people like. Hannah Arendt, or the thinkers of the so-called Frankfurt School. Um, but as I approached my dissertation from that sort of perspective, I wondered more about a, a broader field of uh, intellectuals and their activities, and, and especially about the devastated ground of, of post-Nazi Germany itself, of how questions about German history and modernity and recovery from this uh, set of catastrophes um, might look uh, from, from their epicenter, if that makes sense.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. It certainly does make sense. I mean, of course, you know, you're speaking to a fellow German historian, so the, these these questions and and uh, and the sort of issues of guilt and of how to relate now to the past and all those things that are so wonderfully revealed in your book are things that, you know, we think about quite a lot, particularly those of us who focus on the period after 1945. Um, I wonder if maybe a way that we can get, uh, that we can start to sort of get more deeply into the, the matter of your, of your book is by talking about this sort of amazing cast of characters um, with whom you, with whom you deal in the book. Your characters are a group of mostly men, I think, um, whom you call engaged Democrats. And I wonder if you could tell us what you mean by this is a, this is a, a, a terminology of, of your own of your own construction, engaged Democrats. I wonder if you could tell us who engaged Democrats were and you know who were they sort of soci- sociologically, ideologically, politically, et cetera. And, and why do they become in your book such a crucial force for the reconstruction? or let's say the rehabilitation of a, of a democratic ideal in, in the wasteland of post-war Germany.
1: Um, yes, that's exactly right. This is a, uh, um, the, the term that I use to, to talk about this, you know, fairly large, um, but necessarily so for my purposes, uh, group of, of actors that are at the center of my story, uh, you know, 10, 10 to 15 maybe they are at the very center and then a broader field of, of you know, 30 or more. Um, well, they uh, it's it's a group that emerged into my view um, analytically as I asked myself these questions about uh, about post Nazi Germany, which of course, as as you've mentioned in um, you know in some senses are very classic or, or even conventional questions, right, about Germany's democratization after National Socialism. You know, it's definitely not—it's uh, definitely not an unconventional set of questions. Um, but I really wanted to focus on, on this immediate post-war period. Uh, you know, what was the shape of the memory of the recent past of, of National Socialism, of war, of Holocaust uh, in the immediate wake of these events? What sorts of debates emerged about moving forward uh, in politics and in the, in the economy and culture? Uh, and and also, how were these inflected by the pressures of the Cold War, um, by Germany's occupation? Through the four victorious powers of the of the of the then not yet disintegrated Grand Alliance, um, and then by by of course the the incipient division as those tensions among the victors took shape, uh, and the polarization of the world began to um, to unfold. And I guess that the engaged Democrats were a way for me to to name uh, a group of actors who. Uh, you know, these are public intellectuals. They uh, kind of exploded onto the scene in the late 1940s uh, under these very peculiar conditions, and and had a debate about democratic renewal, or shaped a, a larger public debate about democratic renewal. And they um, and they shared a set of uh, of concerns, um, a shared sense of the challenges that they confronted, and a shared sense of uh, what kinds of answers might be adequate or um, or appropriate um, in that context, and. Uh, this was a way for me to, to, to group these actors together. Um, it's actually not, it's technically not my coinage in a sense. It's uh, something I adapted from two German scholars that use it in, uh, in a kind of related, but a, a more limited register. Um, and I guess it, uh, as you were saying, engaged Democrats, um, I'm reminded of a lot of conversations I've had about the, about the term. It, it can sound very celebratory, in many respects mm. um i suppose it, it and it is um and we all have certain kinds of of interests and investments in, in the stories that we tell and the actors that we tell stories about um and uh you know i certainly have mine in, in this book and it had something to do with things that i appreciated about what these actors were doing and and saying but i intended it really as, as descriptive um uh as a, a term that captures two common denominators to this really rather loose and diverse group, Um, a commitment to public intervention, so engagement in that sense, Uh, you know, also responding to a very clear sense of the malleability of this present moment, that in the wake of the destruction, in the wake of what they also referred to as the the catastrophe that had just passed, uh, in post-Nazi, defeated Germany, um, the kinds of influence that they might have by intervening publicly in, uh, in discussions about what form a future Germany should take. And then also uh, in terms of the, the content of their uh, of what they talked about right? and when they used the word as well as when they didn't use the word, what I found them talking a lot about was, was democracy it was the question of, um, of uh, popular rule of uh, who are the people and what might constitute uh, the people ruling and how this might be an answer to uh, Germany's post-fascist predicament. Mm. Um, and this, the way that they developed of, of talking and thinking about it, and some of the ways that they developed of, of acting in the public uh, arena, had an emphatically participatory sort of inflection to it. Is one of my main claims. Um, so engaged in that sense too, uh, that it draw it. um various kinds of proposals and ideas um, hinged really on the on the engagement, on the active involvement of uh, the people themselves. So an engaged. Group of actors and an engaged sense of democracy uh, this engaged democrat's term is supposed to capture
0: yeah, no, absolutely, and i think I think that that 's exactly what happens in the book. I wonder if you can tell us maybe i hadn't thought about asking you this, but but listening to what you said about I liked what you said about how you know all historians all all scholars, all of us generally have commitments in life um, th- that are very important to us, and your um, you, you, you revere the figures about whom you write. And, and it, it's actually, you know, anyone who reads your book will understand why you revere them, because they're, they're the people that, you know, you want to su- succeed. <laughs> they're, they're the ones that you hope will triumph, um, particularly when you think about the context of, of the immediate aftermath of, of defeat in 1945 in Germany and the immediate a- aftermath of Nazism and the Holocaust. You want these people to win. But I... I I guess what I, what, I, what I think would be very interesting to hear you say then in in light of, in light of your, your your last comments is of the of those the sort of collection of engaged Democrats, who who really for you is or what, what are the small handful of people who for you are the real um, are particular heroes of yours? I mean, if I can ask the question that way it's not a customary question for us to ask, I guess of other historians, but I think it's a fair enough question when we were talking about you know, our own, our own sort of principles and commitments as historians, are there people that really, for you were particularly compelling? Maybe I'll say it that way. And, and, and whose life stories or whose ideas for you were particularly meaningful?
1: Um, what a fascinating question. I'm uh, trying to figure out if I, if I were to pick favorites, (laughs) how I would do it. Um, I do think it's, it's a, it's a great opportunity. Of course I should, um, Uh, tell your listeners a little bit more concretely um, who's uh, who the cast of characters is here. I'm not sure that I would want to pick favorites or um, uh, and, and of course you're picking up on things that I said, but I don't know that I revere so much as appreciate uh, them individually and each of their, you know, in some respects, uh, very, very, Know, heroic in a kind of uh, in in a kind of classical sense but but in very very few cases and most um, much more uh, much more prosaic and and much more common and and full of the sorts of uh, twists turns and, and foibles uh, that that all of our lives are are full of in um, you know in in much less challenging circumstances in many respects but uh, but I guess what I really appreciate about all of them uh, and about the way that they fit together is uh, how they're um, views on democracy and democratic renewal uh, tended in the direction of proposing a kind of um, counter-elitist, a kind of bottom-up set of approaches to the whole topic of how one might organize politics and society in a way that that broke with many kinds of uh, long-standing um, traditions of, uh, you know, modern European traditions about thinking, uh, thinking about politics that really foregrounded the people, their active agency, and their Um, the potentials, the democratic potentials that come out of their self-organization in that moment. And I'm not sure that that's anything that I would want to cohere in uh, in any, um, you know, uh, that's something that they all share together as opposed to something that I want to um, laud any one of them in particular for.
0: uh, Yeah, yeah, no, I get that.
1: I mean, these are, uh, this is an incredible mix of folks. They come out of... uh, uh, incredibly broad mix of, uh, of actors. They come out of a range of um, interwar and wartime sorts of backgrounds and milieurs. Uh, the network that I analyze that, that links them, a, a, a loose uh, network, both ideologically and socially, but it crosses the bounds of uh, of, um, uh, of Catholic, uh, in this case left Catholic, uh, and other sorts of religious milieurs of um, liberal uh, sort of more middle-of-the-road figures um, of uh, people that were involved on the left and actively politicized on the left uh, for a long time, um, as well as people that were unpolitical uh, until 1945 and were, in a sense, energized by that moment to, to develop a political persona that they didn't have before. Um, you know, one of the figures that, that uh, leaps to mind, certainly one of the more... Um, uh, uh, one of the more powerful stories. Uh, one of the few that actually was an, uh, a kind of active resistor uh, during the war. There were uh, there were uh, many, but no one as as high profile as um, Eugen Kogon, for instance, uh, a kind of um, uh, champion of of left Catholicism, of uh, the sorts of ideas that I talk about in my book about decentralized, bottom up, uh, grassroots uh, kinds of um, political. Uh, arrangements and economic arrangements. Uh, one of the um, figures that co found this journal, the the Frankfurter Hefte, um, in the years right after the war, with his with his colleague Walter Jokes and some other people, uh, and he um, he had a he was imprisoned. Uh, he he's in uh, was arrested by the Nazis in in Austria after the annexation, in 1938, and um, spent the following. Uh, six and a half years in in Nazi custody in various locations, but the um, the last uh, the the bulk of that was in Buchenwald actually, uh, and he was involved with the camp resistance there and um, and he came out he uh, he survived he was in a, a privileged sort of position actually uh, one of these um, uh, one of these folks that that had um, you know that had a, a special kind of role to play in the um, in the camp that uh, that allowed him to um, you know that he had a relatively easy time of it. Uh, in fact, so much so that he even read the, um, the Frankfurter Zeitung at uh, at times <laughs> and uh, kind of discovered his uh, his um, his postwar colleague Walter Joukes's writings uh, in the um, in the Frankfurter Zeitung before it was shut down. Um, but he was very involved with the with the camp resistance there. And you know, there's this is sort of adventurous story about he, how he's. Uh, you know, as liberation is, is, uh, in the spring of 45 and, and, uh, you know, liberation is almost upon, um, uh, uh, Buchenwald and he's sort of smuggled out of the camp by the, by the camp resistance, uh, and, um, to make contact with the, uh, with the advancing American troops in this case, and also, um, to contact the camp administration, uh, to try to keep them from liquidating the camp, uh, you know, in advance of the approaching troops and, in. in in some sort of way that would exacerbate uh, the suffering and endanger the the remaining inmates, um, so it's this incredible, incredibly adventurous story, and um, he's a very compelling figure. And he goes on to to uh, write this very important book, The SS State, and to become a political science professor. And he plays a very central role. Uh, again, one of those ten or fifteen um, actors that are that are very much in. Um, uh, in the middle of my of my narrative or at, at a very important sort of node of this network. Uh, but he himself had a very, um, had a very, had a checkered past. He was uh, in the 1920s, not on the left side of political Catholicism, where, where he'll um, end up after the war with Valdelux very, very prominently, but very much on the right. Uh, he was a, a student of, a kind of sociologist and political science scientist before these uh, disciplines specialized uh, um, as much as they have today. Uh, in the 1920s, studying with um, Otmar Spahn in, in Vienna, uh, and this very kind of clerical conservative uh, Spahn is well known for his theory of the, of the corporatist state, uh, which played an important role in, um, in austro uh, in the kind of clerical uh, the, the right-leaning clerical uh, so-called Austro-Fascist sorts of uh, you know, regimes that had held power in, in Austria in the 30s um, and uh, you know, that's kind of Kogon's background right? so he's yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 to sort of revere or to, to heroize that wouldn't be my um, objective so much as to uh, historicize and to marvel at the, the transformation that he undergoes
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that's fascinating. I mean, I think that the the when you refer to the foibles, you know, of a of an individual human life, or or the complex paths that people's lives can take, particularly under the conditions, the political conditions that faced um, the individuals uh, about whom you write, um, that's a very that's a very very interesting part of your book. I think. I wonder if you could tell us if we can move into the realm a little bit less. Speak a little bit less about biography now, and maybe move into the realm of of ideas themselves, and maybe just as a general question to to start thinking about uh, what the engaged Democrats' prescriptions actually were for the creation of a democratic and post fascist, obviously, Germany. I wonder if you, I wonder if you could start us off with with
1: with talking about that a little bit. Certainly. Um. The prescriptions, uh, in terms of uh, kind of concrete institutional programs or prescriptions, they they varied very dramatically, and and in fact many of them um, weren't that interested in uh, institutions per se. That is, didn't have uh, crystalline proposals uh, or or well worked out sorts of blueprints for what German society should look like. Um, you know the the common threads that, that linked them had more to do with uh, these sorts of principles. You know, the various kinds of institutional proposals uh, all involved a kind of focus on on participation, on political participation. I've, I've mentioned it already uh, as a kind of political good in and of itself, as as the core of, of an active uh, democratic uh, life, an active collective existence, but also as a as a as a means to uh, to self education or to a kind of self reeducation I mean one of the things that uh, that distinguished these um, all these various programs uh, was a focus on this sense of practicing democratic engagement as both the end state that they're trying to propose and as the the means of getting to uh, a kind of inner democratization uh, 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 the development of these you know ultimately post, Fascist and post-Nazi Germans uh, into Democrats, yes. as it were, and they were they were um, quite consistent on uh, in the claim that really the only way for that kind of development to happen, that kind of transformation to happen, to make Democrats of of former fascists was through the practice of uh, of actually engaging in self-rule um, through a whole myriad of of, of institutions. Right, so participation was a kind of means and end in this process. Um, the most uh, well-worked-out proposals came from uh, circles are around um, around cultural, political journals. Most of these engaged Democrats uh, were involved in founding uh, journals of one sort or another in this period. The sort of the main venue of their activity uh, in in Frankfurt, uh, so Frankfurt am Main, and in Heidelberg. Uh, these uh, um, had very well worked out proposals uh, with a lot of overlap between the two that um, that haven't really been uh, foregrounded um, in previous scholarship. Uh, so politically, you know, they worked very much in a kind of parliamentary frame, uh, but they were skeptical of, um, of parties, especially of mass parties, organized around interest and, and ideology as opposed to um, groups of these active citizens that would come together and debate the public good. Um, so uh, in a parliamentary frame, but emphasizing self-government at all possible levels, so organs of local self-government, um, the principle of, of federalism, mm-hmm. uh, of, of devolving uh, competencies from, from the center to uh, to lower levels, a kind of federalist decentralization was very important to them. So uh, parliamentary, but, um, but local self-government, uh, federalist principles as a sort of means to maximize this Crucial activity of self-government and the and the um, self-educative or pedagogical potentials that it held, and that's uh, that's just on the political side. You know, in in economics, uh, the vast uh, majority of the figures in this network were democratic socialists of one of one sort or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, um, in the case of of the Frankfurt circle, uh, Kogon and Dierks and their Frankfurter Hefte, or in Heidelberg, I mentioned. Uh, around in a loose sense the journal die wandlung um but with all sorts of uh, ancillary kinds of activities that this circle pursued um and there uh the uh two um of the members of 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 that uh node of the network um Alfred Weber, uh, actually the the brother of the um, much better known um, <laughs> here uh, sociologist Max Weber, but also a sociologist himself. Um and Alexander Mitchellich, who, you know, was relatively uh was completely unknown at the time. Weber was was older and already a prominent scholar, but um Michalich, of course would go on to have a very important public career. Um and they uh They um, put together uh, a proposal called called Free Socialism, Falsocialismus, in in 1946 that really served as a kind of um, to to crystallize uh, a lot of the programmatic proposals that came out of out of Heidelberg. And they are also um, the the kinds of politics that I talked about in the Frankfurt case uh, held. But um, in economics, there there are all sorts of proposals for um, decentralized modes of uh, of socialism, of you know decentralized collective modes of ownership that aren't state uh, socialist, um, collective forms of ownership that aren't state state socialist, so socialized as opposed to nationalized um, property, and a really strong emphasis um, that was actually probably stronger on the Frankfurt side uh, than in Heidelberg on um, principles of uh, self-management and self-government in the economy. Mm -hmm. Um, So the principle of, of... uh, of co-determination, of mitbestimmung was very, very important to them. Uh, different ways that, that working people, the workers themselves can be involved in uh, the control of, and the decision-making processes involved in, um, you know, in running their firms in running these um, firms that are also reorganized at the level of ownership uh, in, in uh, a myriad of, of um, socialized kinds of formats. Right, so, uh, federalism, um, you know, a kind of uh, uh, party-decentered parliamentarism. Um, none of them actively advocated, uh, or um, only in a few of them, in select moments, actively advocate uh, <laughs> parliamentarism's sort of other, the you know, radical alternative of council democracy that uh, cropped up at various points during the 20th century, during the first half of the 20th century, most importantly after um, World War I. Uh, but that was part of their politics. Uh, um, that was a kind of, um, uh, that was a kind of, uh, council democracy had uh, shared this affinity for for grassroots kinds of forms, and, and they had a great deal of interest in that, although their proposals tended to be parliamentary. Um, and then, as I said, uh, kind of analogs to councils in the economic uh, world, everything from uh, works councils on the shop floor to uh, worker participation in various kinds of, uh, organs of um, of the governance of firms and decision making within firms that fall under the heading of of co determination, um, and that are actually uh, you know elements of a of a longer term um, uh, social democratic and uh, and um, social democratic council communist uh, uh, left um, socialist uh, sorts of uh, principles that they highlighted.
0: Yeah, very interesting. I was just thinking about, I mean, it's an aside, and, but it's, it still strikes me that here recently where I live in, in the eastern part of Tennessee, uh, there was a, um, it was put before the workers of the, lo- uh, there's a local, not not very near where I live, but, but not too far from here either. Uh, um, the Volkswagen plant put it to the workers to have a kind of mitbestimmung, a kind of um, uh, co-determining uh, body created in the plant, and it was, it was voted down, which is kind of an interesting thing because of the older history that you're describing and um, the, the very different way that that uh, um, that labor is organized in Germany, which has to do with some of the things that some of the ideas that you're talking about um, over the longer term. Uh,
1: it does. It does very much. And yeah. I've, I've, um, the Chattanooga plant story is one that I've been I've been following the, the Volkswagen um, uh, plant there. Um and it is really interesting, but it's. It also, um, you know, it points to ways in which these um, principles and and mitbshem was a very important one, um, sort of corporatist principles and um, principles of, of what went under the rubric of economic democracy and sort of uh, you know in the social democratic traditions that were interested in this. Um, you know, in this moment in 1945, when when so many things seemed possible, mm. uh, opened up as really. Uh, really radical sorts of proposals for um, for a structurally different society, as it were, uh, and a lot of them have a kind of reformist or accommodationist ring now uh, in labor politics. You know, they're they're tied very much to a kind of um, set of, of of settlements that were forged in the 1950s, right? Where um, then co-determination is just co determination, right? right? Labor gets to have a say, big labor, you know, organized in, in, in unions or actually in the majority of the economy, unions, direct influence was, uh, um, was very circumscribed But uh, you know, workers, the, the community of the, um, of the shop, the Betriebsgemeinschaft, you know, could have a say, but a very limited one, right? Uh, they, they get a word in here and there. Um, and these principles of co-determination, uh, as kind of grassroots democratic principles in the debates of the immediate post-war years they had uh, kind of structurally much more expansive and and um, and I guess uh, politically much more um, ambitious sorts of projects that were worked out in that in that kind of framework
0: how do you t- maybe you could say something about this I hadn't planned to ask you this either but now that you're now that you're talking about these very concrete um, sorts of proposals for real really what what would have been and some of which turned out to be quite thoroughgoing um uh, changes, I mean, the, the changes that were implemented quite thoroughgoing and, 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 uh, and changes that had an enormous impact on the development on the, I, I would think, I mean, I do think on the later development of German democracy. Um, but I wonder if you could talk, maybe you could say something about, so you have, um, On the one hand, you have kind of looked at your group of of individuals, your engaged Democrats, as a network, and that's a very important kind of concept in your book, not to see them so much as individuals, but to see them as a part of a greater group of people who are engaged in very similar ways of thinking about solving common problems and they're very um, focused on the notion of participation and and the and the practice of participation. And you've already outlined some of the very interesting proposals that, that pro- proposals that they had concrete ones for how people would learn to participate democratically. I wonder though if you could give us some examples of how. So you have on the one hand your network and. And the network is in in conversation with itself with its with its various constituent members. in what ways then do the engaged Democrats also talk to um, people who are not in the network, people who are coal miners, for example. you have a fantastic photograph in your book of of I think it's Kogon meeting with with coal miners. I wonder if you could talk about that just a little bit and how what the what engaged Democrats were talking about doing then how it gets heard beyond the network, I guess I would say
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm um uh, the project of communicating with a, with a broader public was was absolutely central to uh what they were up to um, both in the immediate post-war years and uh um, and afterward um so in the immediate post-war years uh you know this kind of um loose and, and variegated but uh but consistent and and um connected in ways that I try to show network uh, is both um, talking uh, to itself, right, and and even far-flung nodes of the network that I've talked about, uh, um, that I that I haven't talked about. I mean, I'm folks in the in in East Berlin and and people that will, after the split, affiliate with and and identify with uh, the who are in the Soviet zone and, and will become important in, in the GDR. I mean, their questions of, of federalism and and uh, and decentralization played uh, rather differently. Right, um, yes. but they but they shared um, these same impulses uh, about uh, participation, um, about uh, about um, publicness. You know, the publicness as a kind of principle of politics um, worked themselves out somewhat differently in terms of concrete uh, proposals. But so the network itself was was differentiated and variegated enough. But they um, but they definitely engaged in uh, in direct dialogue with um, other. Uh, groupings on the kind of intellectual scene in immediate post-war Germany, uh, like um, the Allied powers, of course, uh, first and foremost, kind of setting the framework for their activity. And then uh, other really important German intellectual, political uh, sorts of groupings, um, people that, uh, um, you know, that... Um, uh, with the engaged Democrats, one of the sorts of commonalities with their politics was uh, advocating for an, an independent, so-called neutralist, uh, an actively neutral kind of um, German, German future that would be uh, between the uh, – not affiliated directly with these sort of incipiently polarizing um, uh, superpowers and, the, um, the, uh, and their allies – uh, there were there were groups on the ground in Germany that were advocating, you know, closer ties to the East or closer ties to the West, and and privileging the sorts of um, proposals that uh, or the sorts of futures that those um, that the United States or France or Britain uh, on the one hand and and that the Soviet Union and the and the so called uh, you know the budding so called folks uh, so peoples democracies um, of the of Eastern Europe represented. Um, that was one kind of axis of, of distinction um, in which uh, the engaged Democrats, Germany's engaged Democrats, sort of dialogued with other German groups on the ground, uh, with more conservative uh, groups, a very prominent voice in the immediate post war years. Uh, the, um, the, um, uh, those who talked about Germany's, Germany as uh, participating in a kind of Occidental um, political and cultural. Formation uh, of uh, Europe as an as an abendland, and it had a very had a very uh, conservative kind of inflection, uh, seeing um, secularism and uh, the materialism that that uh, you know for that matter both the, the post war West and the um, and the Soviet Union represented as uh, um, foils against which a uh, a Christian um, uh, Europe would um, would distinguish itself. Uh, so there are, there are dialogue partners on the ground in this immediate post-war moment, um, but they're also very, the uh, Germany's engaged Democrats were also very interested in informing coalitions outside of uh, the intellectual sphere itself. Um, so in the immediate post-war years this plays itself out in, in various kinds of pursuits that uh, transcended the realm of um, of founding and writing in these journals various kinds of other uh, organizational um, pursuits various kinds of other groups that they attempted to uh, to form and to um, uh, to direct um, or to uh, see on their way into the into the broader sphere of politics um, and then the, uh, the picture that you mentioned um about uh, Eugen Kogon, um, on whom we've all uh, you know already focused a bit, uh, and these coal miners actually uh, points to some of the coalition building that they tried to execute in the immediate post-war years. You know, the idea of bringing uh, Christians uh, and workers together was very, very central for these um, for Kogon and Derricks in the um, circle around the Frankfurt Um but by the 1950s, when their initial hopes for a kind of radically renewed Germany, you know, democratic socialist, independent of the, uh, of the occupying powers um, and independent of the Cold War, had uh, in a sense been stymied, had, had run aground on the realities of the Cold War and the division of Germany, um, uh, people that were in, in the West, as, as Kogon and Dürks were, uh, sought new kinds of, of partnerships, new kinds of coalitions. Uh, and there they, um, they teamed up quite, quite directly with, uh, with the unions um, who were important in these struggles for, for Mitbestimmung, for codetermination, as uh, the various kinds of um, more emphatic forms of codetermination get uh, kind of whittled down and shaped into what will be the, the post-war settlement that, um, that you mentioned in the context of, of VW in, um, in Tennessee a little bit earlier. Uh, and that photo is a, a wonderful sort of um, artifact of this moment. Where, uh, I mean, just uh, for your listeners, um, you know, Eugen Kogon is, uh, uh, you know, he's there in his in his double-breasted suit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it's a little bit threadbare, uh, but he's in one of these um, he's in one of these mines uh, at a um, at a festival. The the so-called uh, Ruhr Festival, uh, a kind of cultural festival that the that the Union um, Federation in West Germany put on for the workers uh, in this very important coal mining district in the Ruhr, uh, in a city called Recklinghausen. and, and he's there in his double um, his double-breasted suit, and he's surrounded by uh, I think there are two or three um, coal miners in frame, with of course the, the dust on their faces and the um, uh, and the their eyes exposed. Um, and it's really not entirely clear who is communicating what to whom <laughs> That's in right. that photo. It's really, um, it's really pretty, cool, pretty remarkable, but um, it's, uh, it's an event that I go into a little bit in, in just the, um, one of the late chapters of the book where you have uh, the unions mobilizing intellectuals to talk about uh, the state of um, the uh, labor constitution, as they called it, of, of West Germany, and um, the possibilities for a union-oriented politics, and this is something that that Kogler and Dirks and all sorts of uh, other people in West Germany took very, very seriously. in the unions as a um, a kind of coalition partner in trying to forge uh, a politics that would, um, you know, that would fight against the the restoration, a, a term that they coined, but the uh, the sort of conservatively inflected restoration of uh, of um, of well, of older modes of doing just about anything right. uh, that they confronted in West Germany, and um, uh, you know, this produced at the level of of um, connections between intellectuals and politicians uh, a peace movement in in the mid 1950s uh, that was the first broad based extra parliamentary mobilization uh, in West Germany. And it has very concrete sorts of ties to to other modes and moments of political activism in the 1960s and. Uh, and relating to the new left, so you know this coalition between um, between intellectuals and the unions um, was very productive and very powerful in, in many ways. But uh, that um, well, the photo that you mentioned uh, references this moment. Uh, other aspects of that that kind of connection, where you have um, uh, you know these very, very two very very different worlds that have to uh, meet and talk to one another in the context of forging that kind of a coalition. Uh, and really, the, um, uh, one of the, the workers is, is smiling at the camera mm. and clearly not uh, listening to whatever Eugen Kogan must be saying <laughs> but, uh, at all. And it really... Uh,
0: Either that or that guy just told a joke and Eugen Kogon is trying to figure out what he meant.
1: That, that may also be, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but it's a funny moment of slippage in that attempted coalition building there.
0: Yeah, no, it is absolutely. Um, I thought it was a very striking moment in the book. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about history because I think that's one of, for me, that was a really interesting. Uh, that was a very interesting part of your book. Was sort of um, how these, um, how these individuals, how the engaged Democrats, dealt with the problem of the past. And so you're you're alluding to it actually when you talk about the concept of restoration. I mean, there was this there was a fear, which is a quite legitimate fear that. Um that somehow things would just kind of go back to the way they had been before. And you know with minor with minor amendments, we can, you know we we won't have a dictatorship anymore, but a lot of other things will structurally say, stay the same. And, and these um, these engaged Democrats were very concerned about that possibility. And so there's another way in which history is important in your book, a related way, which is uh, the question of what to do, about these sort of foundational concepts that are so important to sort of the, the furtherance of German culture and society in a certain sense. I mean, ideas about culture and about the meaning of culture in, in German history, ideas about what Germans called Bildung or called Bildung. I mean, the term Bildung is still still used, certainly, but it has a very different meaning now than it had in 1945. Um, this notion of sort of self-cultivation and... and uh, um, those ideas of course after 1945 like everything else in germany needed had to be called into question and so how do you and this is what i'm trying to ask you it's just taking me a long time to get there how do you on the one hand try to forge a path forward to do something new but of course you have to work with what you have so how do these how do the engaged democrats deal with these older concepts that are so foundational in german in german cultural life over you know, over, over centuries, actually.
1: Well, Monica, you point to a a really core aspect of, uh, of what's fascinating about these figures that I highlight, and that is the, the insistence with which, and this is another um, uh, kind of principle of, of, delineating the network, you know, as I was looking into who was saying what on the ground right after the war um, the insistence with which this set of actors um, who, you know, not accidentally then um, were in uh, communication with one another, you know, talking to one another um, on this field of, of cultural political debate, the insistence with which they intertwined thinking about politics in the ways that we've talked about already, right, you know, politics and economics, um, with thinking about culture was really quite striking. Uh, and um, there was really no way to Separate these themes in um, in confronting this period, um, because other other actors didn't right? Right, and, uh, right. other folks on whom I don't uh, uh, focus um, might have engaged, been engaged uh, in questions of of uh, of, you know, of culture and its renewal, or or rather its rehabilitation, um, or might have been. You know, there was plenty of dialogue about politics and economics that I don't focus on that didn't. Um, you know, in the same venues and oftentimes in the same articles or even the same sentences sort of intertwine uh, questions about culture with questions about politics in the way that uh, these, uh, that Germany's engaged Democrats did. Um, so it's, uh, I, it, one of the um, aspects of this issue is, uh, points to uh, this idea of renewal. So the, the renewal half of democratic renewal a really clear sense of the temporality of 1945, of this moment of of rupture, right? The zero hour, a, a problematic notion that um, that at the level of their personal experience uh, they took extremely seriously of 1945 and the end of National Socialism and the end of the war and the defeat of uh, of this Nazi version of Germany as a kind of moment for uh, for uh, you know the possibility of Um, of a radically different future but their commitment to the to the idea that that involved neither a kind of rehabilitation of past traditions you know something that they that they grouped under the heading of restoration uh which has a whole other life um subsequently or a related life it's developed um from their discussions of it into uh you know in in a narrower sort of way uh a general um accusation of the of um, the culture on political left in, in West Germany about uh, the illegitimacy of that state's foundation. Um, but this this uh, sense that you couldn't just rehabilitate old traditions, um, so the traditions of, of German culture that you mentioned, uh, but also other sorts of political and economic um, stances and traditions. Uh, but you didn't want to reject them either, that, that moving forward in Germany involved a kind of critical reappropriation of uh, these deeply ambivalent ambivalent in and of themselves uh, aspects of the german past so not that there were sort of good parts and bad parts but the the good and the bad were so deeply intertwined for them uh that um critically reappropriating refashioning in a new context these traditions was the mode in which they would talk about what what renewal meant yeah right and the specific traditions that you asked about about the cultural heritage um you know these uh Figures of you know German, the flowering of classical German culture from the late 18th through the the early part of the 19th century, um, you know Goethe and Schiller and Lessing, uh, you know from Kant over uh, Fichte and Schelling to Hegel and philosophy and and all sorts of other figures uh, to the radicals of the 1830s and 40s, Heinrich uh, Heine and Karl Marx, for that matter, um, you know were all seen as a, a kind of body of resources. Um, on on which one might draw, uh, but that were also uh, bound up with um, a set of traditions uh, or a set of of habits that they both um, shaped and reflected. That uh, that were complicit in a sense in the uh, in the terrible trajectory that German history had taken. So, um, you know, when it comes to to idealist philosophy, so Kant, to Hegel, or uh, you know. Um, Romanticism and, and neoclassicism literature, this sort of goethe Schiller uh, camp, um, you know, these engaged Democrats were very, very conscious of how uh, a fascination with that German culture uh, and the modes of, uh, as you said, self-cultivation and, um, and self-development and the development of individual capacities uh, had been rendered almost exclusively in a kind of intellectualized way and in an otherworldly way in a way that privileged this realm of culture over the world, right. Uh, over an engagement in politics and economics, um, a kind of apoliticism or a, uh, or a, a, worldly sort of quietism that developed out of that, that, um, engaged Democrats and, and other people, uh, other kinds of critics after 1945 saw as, um, as, as wrapped up in the historical dynamics that produced then uh, Nazism and its crimes, um, that a kind of inability of German people to uh, focus concretely on the political world made them susceptible to, um, to, uh, uh to national polit- nationalist politics, to, um, a kind of, uh, um, you know, a set of authoritarian complexes right. that, uh, you know that that enabled uh, the rise of militarism, of nationalism, and and of national socialism as a kind of outgrowth of that. Right? But uh, where these um, engaged Democrats differed from other folks that were talking about the um, the cultural tradition was not only in the fact that um, they critiqued this tradition, uh, unlike um, you know many people, uh, a more conservative and and by far the dominant position in the in the postwar period involved. A kind of uncritical affirmation of these aspects, right? That um, we right
0: could, as though they were some they had somehow remained um, impervious to, to 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 Nazism to what had happened.
1: Uh, yes, exactly. That these traditions had nothing to do with Nazism and could be a kind of um, uh, you know could be simply returned to um, in the sense that uh, you know you could you could go home to Goethe as one of the sort of key words, uh, key phrases in the period was um, went, uh, coined by, by Frank Thies, who actually uh, who's also well known for um, for uh, criticizing Thomas Mann uh, in the great debate between uh, exiles and um, uh, and so-called inner emigres. Thies uh, spoke up for the, the folks that had stayed in Germany and, and uh, you know, his position was that there were these um, these shining uh, German cultural traditions that uh, Nazism had just um, uh, the, the uh, Nazism had kind of grafted uh, its own uh, values over, and that Germans could simply scrape away uh, that Nazi scourge and and return to these positive cultural traditions. Right. So that's uh, that was um, another position that the uh, Germany's engaged Democrats distinguished themselves from on the on the cultural field of conversations about about renewal um, they critiqued the the cultural tradition in, in in the ways that i mentioned but they also saw it as a kind of um as this uh really robust and um potentially quite transformative resource for democratic renewal in the postwar years um that uh you know philosophy from Kant to Hegel and and the literature of Goethe and Schiller and um and, uh, you know, this, this has certain kinds of resonances already in the 1830s and 40s with, with people like Heiner and Marx, uh, focused on um, or boiled down to a kind of core principle of uh, a specific way of viewing the human subject and subjectivity and human freedom mm-hmm. uh, as, as self-developing and world-shaping simultaneously. Uh, and this kind of core principle or core trope uh, of an of an autonomous of a of a self-legislating of you know making its own rules, um, both self-developing and and shaping its own world sort of vision of the human subject from German literature and German philosophy could be in a sense um, that that potential could be recovered from this this apolitical kind of set of outcomes that that it uh, generated in or or was. Uh, that it abetted in actual German history and brought to bear as uh, the kind of core principle of this new participatory politics after the catastrophe.
0: Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah. Very so in that sense, this this ambiguous relationship to the German cultural tradition, to everything that um, the Bildung and, um, you know, that Geistkultur and Bildung stood for uh, in in the German 19th century um You know, uh, um, ways that the cultural that the educated middle classes had of, of distinguishing themselves from the masses and of uh, keeping themselves uh, separate from and above the profane world of, of politics and economics with their um, sort of Mandarin um, uh, uh, fixation on matters cultural and was both a, a kind of symptom of everything that had gone wrong in German history for, uh, Germany's engaged democrats and a sort of uh, a sort of um, resource that could be broken out of that framework and and redeployed in a political kind of context uh, as a, a fundamental aspect of what the the subjectivity behind this participatory vision of politics that they developed was about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's very interesting. That's um, hearing you put it together again. Actually, gave me a, a kind of a different take. A, a, or a, another angle on the book that I had not quite put together for myself as of yet, so I think that's really interesting, and I'm glad I'm glad we got you to talk about that a little bit about the relationship between culture and politics, very specifically. Um, I wonder if the, you know towards the end of your book uh, you have a chapter. It may actually be the epilogue, but I don't think so. I think it's I think it's just the last chapter of the book. But you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Which is about the re, you know what what a lot of people would say. I think you would say was the sort of the the apotheosis of participatory democracy in in the 20th century which are these are the moments in 1968 all over the world and then again in 1989 and and you have this really interesting chapter where you sort of talk about the extent to which we can see in these moments in 1968 and 1989 we can, especially in '68, we can actually still see the engaged Democrats at work in various ways, and that's a very interesting story. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit too about whether or not—I mean—is it right to see—is it right to see in in, um, in that apotheosis of participatory democracy in West Germany and then in East Germany too in 1989—is it right to see that as a part of the legacy of the of the engaged Democrats? What do you what do you think about that?
1: Um, I think that the, uh, I mean, that is one of the uh, the sorts of outcomes that I want to, um, that I do think the engaged Democrats um, had something to do with, right? I mean, I certainly do think that uh, we can see this as a, as a kind of legacy. Um, I do think that it's much clearer, as, as you've already sort of gestured at in the case of 1968, um, or all the developments that that kind of stands in for. Right. Uh, and uh, then in the case of 1989, it's much more attenuated in uh, the the sorts of developments leading up to um, the or the popular revolutionary side of uh, the end of the East German regime in 1989. Um one way to, uh, into this uh, is um, to think about how the the central actors of 1968, so um, the movements of 1968, uh, everything from from the students to the uh, to the the unions to the um, to the churches, uh, you know, um, uh, the. The, the new left as a whole, uh, the, the kind of peace movement, um, so unions and churches, and and the nineteen fifties peace movement, uh, the students, uh, the SDS, so the um, Socialist German Students League, um, the mobilizations against um, the uh, the emergency laws, you know, another uh, crucial kind of ingredient in to nineteen sixty eight in West Germany, um, really picked up on uh, you know something that we haven't gotten. As much of a chance to talk about the uh, what the engaged Democrats were at the center of in the 1950s in terms of their own activities, right? This critique of uh, the restoration, um, the critique of you um, know more detail what they called uh, re-Nazification, a kind of sense of this uh, of a of a failed reckoning with the Nazi past—and um, uh, in uh, both at the level of uh, kind of personnel continuities in the state. Uh, and at the level of um, of people's own individual conscience, um, the remilitarization—you know, the the um, what the peace movement had been against—restoration, um, remilitarization, renazification; uh, these are all tropes that uh, ideas about West Germany that the the movements of nineteen sixty had picked on very picked up on very very clearly. Uh, and um, as I argue in the book, the engaged Democrats were were crucial at sort of forging that language. Right? Um, they also, as you uh, mentioned, played a role themselves. I mean, they were present in, in, the, in these different facets institutionally of, uh, of the New Left and, and of the, the movements of 1968 uh, themselves. Uh, but in a sense, their, their rhetorical reservoir was also really important uh, that they had generated uh, in these oppositional stances in the 1950s uh, for shaping uh, the politics of 1968. And there were, of course, many um, distinctions as well. Uh, the um, 68ers per se, of course, had a, had a much broader kind of frame for their yeah. for their politics and their interests. I mean, everything from their protest forms to the uh, the lifestyle politics and the kinds of uh, cultural um, uh, and and 1968 is a kind of cultural revolution that these, you know, um, that these the engaged Democrats of an older generation, and still, in terms of their kind of comportment and their habitus and their personas, uh, very much um, Bildungsburger kind of, uh, uh, you know, many of them were, um, you know, these these aspects of 1968 didn't even show up on their radar screen. Right. right? Um, but in terms of the thinking, uh, this emphasis on participation, the kind of uh, orientation to all German initiatives and a vision of German neutrality as a kind of way of Breaking apart and undermining the Cold War, uh, you know, I try to work some of those connections out um, with reference to Rudi Dutschke and his um, and his politics. Uh, this uh, vision that he elaborated um, of uh, of West Berlin as a kind of uh, council republic, that, yeah. uh you know, whose influence could spread uh, reunify um, East and West Germany. Uh, Dutschke, of course, had been uh, had been an East German. Um, uh, in time to see uh, the great oppositional uh, sort of um, high point, such as it was of the engaged Democrats in East Germany, uh, which is a, a story of about 1956 and about using the um, seeing in the, the moment of desalinization, uh, both an opportunity to reckon with um, their uh, sort of fractured um, affinities for, and to some extent illusions about the potential of the GDR uh, as a, uh, a socialist dictatorship that, um, you know, that for reasons of its sort of anti-fascist credentials, uh, these engaged Democrats that, um, that affiliated after 1949 with, with the East, as it was called, um, uh, you know, um, slowly, uh, sort of lost their, uh, enthusiasm for and, and developed increasingly oppositional, um, sorts of ideas about and these these really broke open in in 1956 and and Dutschke was there to see it and and goes to West Germany later and is very important in 1968 and Ernst Bloch, one of the uh, central engaged Democrats um, and Wolfgang Haarich another one uh, um, uh, Bloch goes west as well and Hans Meyer goes west as well Um, Wolfgang Haarich stays uh, but these are all um, people that were involved in various kinds of initiatives around 1956 um, and the story about 1989 is 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 a much more distant one because, by and large, there isn't really direct, uh, there really isn't direct involvement by these people that are at the core of uh, the story of my book in the events of 1989. Um, but the, you know, if we want to say 1989ers, and sort of analog to the 68ers, um, we're very conscious of these pre of these prior moments of. Uh, of uh, destabilization in the system and of democratic critique. Uh, and 1956 was was one of those moments. I mean, there there are other figures uh, in between, you know, both uh, uh very crucial to the sort of um, story of, of dissent and opposition, popular mobilization in the 1980s in terms of, you know, intellectual figureheads at least, um, that has really very little to do with the story. Um but uh, Stefan Heim, for instance, does in some uh, in some interesting sorts of ways. Uh, you know, Stefan Heim, alongside Christoph Wolf, probably uh, two of the most prominent um, intellectual opposition figures in the early parts of the revolution of 1989. The mobilizations and uh, culminated in, a, in in October uh, and in November of that year. Um, and Stefan Heim's story, sort of. Uh, intertwines with that of the engaged Democrats, he does uh, come back to Germany too late to be one uh, I mean another way uh, in which these engaged Democrats are distinctive are, are they They really, the network that I talk about was on the ground to take shape in the years right after the war, 45 to 48 or 49 and um, you know, intellectuals who uh, and political figures who may very well have been both engaged and democratic but just weren't in immediate post-war Germany uh, in that sense fall out of my frame um and Haim is one of those people. Uh, he comes back in uh, in uh, in 51 uh, to the GDR. He uh, had been in exile, as some of the engaged Democrats were, in his case, uh, in the U.S. And he came back briefly in 1945 with the occupation troops uh, and then goes back. But he, he falls prey to the kind of McCarthy-era anti-communism mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and relocates then to the GDR. Uh, and... Um, has uh, a complicated history of of affinity and opposition uh, in the um, in the fifties and sixties, uh, and um, by the eighties he he becomes um, uh, he becomes central to uh, to what will develop there, and he's as I said one of the most high profile figures in eighty nine. Um, so he's he's kind of had glancing intersections with uh, with these engaged Democrats. Um, uh, uh, the way that their biographies kind of uh, um, meet up at moments. Uh, but it's really interesting from the late 70s through the, the early 80s in his own literary production, as he begins to imagine, um, he writes these, these political novels that kind of, uh, that kind of reproduce the history of, these, uh, the, of the activism in which the engaged Democrats were really quite directly involved. Right. Um, and he works them up in this literary way. Uh, writing the novel Colleen in in uh, in the late nineteen seventies, um, which very explicitly reworks this material from nineteen fifty six and the possibility of a kind of internal democratic critique uh, of the GDR of a kind of socialist democratization of the GDR that uh, that Wolfgang Harich was uh, was very central to. Um, uh, you know, he works this up in this novel about uh, about the emergence and and the and the crushing of that. Um, of that possibility in 1956 and then a few years later he writes uh, he writes his novel schwarzenberg about the so-called um unoccupied uh the the schwarzenberg republic in in this unoccupied corner of the uh of what will become east germany when the the allies just didn't quite get there to that corner of the mountains in 1945 and uh and you know there are all kinds of uh you know Certainly, um, to an extent, mythologized and romanticized sorts of ideas about this moment of of German self government and in 1945, what might have happened if these um, if these uh, grassroots nuclei of of kind of anti fascists they're able to um, to flourish as the regime is crumbling? What would have happened if they took power? Uh, and um, uh, so um, Heim's uh, kind of literary production then in the 1980s sort of culminates in. In a moment that, having looked at 1956, uh, he then looks at 1945 as um, a kind of resource for the, the democratization of the GDR, the socialist democratization that he's hoping for in 1989, um, uh, and referencing thereby these these crucial moments of uh, the activity, the activism, and the intellectual production of the figures that I talk about in my book. Um, so again, much more attenuated connections, and right? um Some of the figures that are that are uh, that are purged and discredited in 56 are rehabilitated in 1989 and, and 1990. Um, Janke, uh, um Walter Janke, a couple of the other protagonists around were related to Wolfgang Haarich. Uh and Haley himself uh, is um, is rehabilitated but not um, with the public fanfare of these other figures and uh, a kind of... Um, conflict between Wolfgang Harich and Walter Janka about uh, whether or not Janka was involved in these discussions uh, that culminated in in, um, in a platform for the uh, radical restructuring of of the GDR in 1956 that Harich wrote, um, and then very much on his own initiative and without anyone else noticing, um, communicated to the uh, you know to the to the much despised. Uh, sort of spy arm for the East, the the East Bureau, the Ostbruch, the uh of the Social Democratic Party in West Germany. Um, you know, there's a kind of conflict that erupts in the wake of nineteen eighty nine between uh Hara about that history of nineteen fifty six and nineteen uh that culminated in, in show trials for both of them in nineteen fifty seven uh and in, in both of their arrests and imprisonment. Um that's also a, a very bitter sort of um uh uh, legacy of the the engaged Democrats that gets um, worked out in the um, in the years in and around 1989.
0: That's right. That's right. I think you, I, th- I think that's uh you, you've given us some really good um, I guess pathways I would say into understanding the project of the book as a whole and I appreciate that very much and I know that our listeners will appreciate it. Uh, there's a lot there and we could we could keep talking for hours about your book. Um, there's a lot of things that we couldn't get to, but I think we've taken up probably too much of your time already. And I, and I, and though I appreciate that very much, I do wonder if you would um, indulge me just for another minute or two and kind of maybe tell our listeners what, um, what sorts of projects or what kind of a, a book you're working on now or, you know, anything like that. I mean, sort of give us a sense of um, what Sean Forner up to right now.
1: Um, well, uh, I mean, aside from, from teaching, obviously, my uh, my current, um, well, my new research project, uh, it's a new book project. It's it's still kind of, uh, well, it's very much formation, but it explores the transformation of, of socialist politics and theory in, in 1950s Europe, so uh, Germany um, very much in East and West Europe in this context. Uh, a transformation that we can recognize um, retrospectively as the work of, of an intellectual first new left, right? Mm. So it builds on some of the themes that we've talked about, uh, but very much in a comparative and, and transnational kind of form uh, frame um, with a different sort of focus, a different set of actors, a different set of questions. Uh, so the first new left, um, uh, when these diverse groups of intellectuals across Europe gathering to um, to express their rejection of the Cold War world, but also to revot- revitalize socialism um, in what they called a humanist vein. This is very much the uh, intellectual political configuration that generates socialist humanism, um, you know, turning away from, uh, uh, you know, from the um, established leftist parties, uh, turning away from um, the the Marxist and, and socialist left's commitment to objective laws and historical necessity as principles, um, turning toward subjectivity, consciousness, praxis uh, as foci of socialist thinking um and uh and away from the parties uh and um what they see as 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 compromised social democratic and communist uh political um uh traditions in terms of in terms of actual mobilization
0: that sounds really interesting i mean so in a sense taking taking some of the core themes of your book and then expanding that outward um into europe as a whole and and sort of looking at um D- different actors probably some of your same actors will, will show up i would assume again in, in in the second book but i but i think that's a that sounds like a really wonderful sort of progression from this book to the next one
1: yeah no it's it's uh, it's very handy there are a couple of actors that overlap but it's really uh, um, a couple of case studies that i expand on actually um one is the uh is the the moment that we talked about so much um partway through uh these intellectual conversations between unions and intellectuals um but treating that in, in the 1950s with the photo of, of Kogan and, and the miners, um, but the uh, treating that as a, a Western European forum for discussion, and that was a moment where a lot of these um, uh, trends um, that that I'll argue in, in the new book, uh, reshaped socialism and, and built the groundwork for an intellectual new left, uh, and a first new left um, of the 1950s took shape. Uh, there's also a philosophy conference in 1956 in Eastern Europe, the that drew folks in in East Berlin that drew folks from all over Eastern Europe and all over uh, and and places in Western Europe, too, um, that I'll look at uh, as another kind of case study of um, what they called revisionist Marxist thinking uh, Eastern uh, in Eastern Europe. But, you know, in a way that was very much bound up with with uh, developments, you know, again, outside of Germany and, and Poland and Hungary. Uh, in Czechoslovakia, um, but also case studies that that you know that have nothing to do with um, uh, with the material uh, that we've talked about. Um, you know, I, I, uh, three interrelated journals um, in in Milan and Paris and West Berlin that, that cropped up in in the mid nineteen fifties, all kind of looking at each other uh, and um, in dialogue with one another as uh, as as for for working out this this kind of um, humanized socialism uh, that, that 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 drew on 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 both older kinds of leftist and non leftist traditions. Um, the, uh, the most famous uh, um, site of this first new left, of course, is uh, the one that that, that um, gave the first new left its name um, was the the British group around the New Left Review um, and the uh, two journals that that came together. Um, to late '50s journals that came together to, to form that in 1960s, um, and they had various uh, sorts of really interesting connections to um, to Yugoslavia actually, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and uh, to Poland as well in 1956, 57. Um, so uh, I imagine another chapter that focuses on um, on those sorts of connections, and I'm really interested in how these kinds of translocal and cross border contracts were relevant to um, these uh, groups of intellectuals coming together and thinking about um, uh, about transforming socialism in this kind of way but I'm also very interested in um, what made similar ideas plausible at the same time but in different places mm-hmm. uh, in the East as well as the, yeah, yeah. the Western Europe and so methodologically I'm, I'm interested in uh, thinking about um, uh, thinking about, um, broader frames of, of uh, socio-political and socio-economic context that might help us make sense of why these uh, kinds of ideas, um, both the rejection of, of uh, certain aspects of the, you know, what they would then call the old left uh, of mainstream social democracy and mainstream communism, um, but also the, the the attraction of these new ideas about uh, about consciousness, about subjectivity, about uh, uh, Disciplinary techniques and surveillances and spectacles. Um, you know, what about the kind of 1950s world, uh, this high modernist world in, in both East and West Europe, um, in terms of the socioeconomic context, not just in terms of the cultural and intellectual context, and in the socio-political context, um, made those kinds of ideas attractive uh, and might explain why uh, they took root in uh, in different places that didn't necessarily have any contact or communication with one another. Um in the same historical
0: moment. That's right. That's fascinating. That's going to be a wonderful book, I have to say. Um, I, uh, I I don't want to take up any more of your time, uh, but I do want to take this just one moment to thank you, and to uh, and just to let you know how much I enjoyed hearing you talk about your your new book. The book is called "German Intellectuals and the Challenge of Democratic Renewal: Culture and Politics After 1945." Actually, I enjoyed hearing you talk about that, and I enjoyed equally hearing you talk about your new project uh the author is sean forner we've been talking to sean about his new book published by cambridge very recently sean it's been a pleasure thank you very much
1: monica it's been a great pleasure for me too thank you